0: Well, good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Glad that you would join us this morning. Uh, If there's anything that we can do to help you get connected to the community here at River City or serve you and your family, we'd love to be able to do that. Come find me afterwards or someone else on the screens. We'd we'd love to get to know you and, and serve you in those ways. Uh, two weeks ago, we started here at River City a new series, a short series, of was five weeks, uh, taking a look, uh, a series called The Way of the Exile. And normally at River City, we just kind of pick a book of the Bible and work our way through it verse by verse. And, and we do that because we really want God's Word to be the thing that primarily shapes our time together. And, and uh, it's more important that you guys hear God's Word and what is said about it rather than just my ideas about something that I think is important. But sometimes it's helpful for us to study the various themes that are woven throughout the story of Scripture, the, the themes that kind of traverse the, 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 the breadth of Scripture, and, and to see the ways in which those themes are brought out throughout the course of the Bible, and And it's really important that we do that sometimes because when we do that, it helps us to get a bigger picture of who God is and of what he's like. And and therefore, as well, it helps us to understand more about who we are and who we're called to be and how we're called to live as God's people in the world. And, And so that's what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks here at River City. And the theme that we're going to be examining together is the identity of God's people as exiles. First week, uh, two weeks ago, we took a look at uh, two passages, one in Jeremiah chapter 29 in the Old Testament and and the other in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 in the New Testament. And and we saw how in both the Old and the New Testament that God's word not only describes his people as exiles, but more importantly, it highlights the reality that for God's people, seeing ourselves as exiles is inextricably linked with what it means to fundamentally understand who we are and what it means to live as God's people in the world. And so, as we studied those two passages, we saw how having the perspective of an exile, it fundamentally shapes the way that we think about, the way that we relate to, and the way that we engage in the world around us in two big overarching ways, which have lots of implications. But the two big overarching ways, first, is that having the perspective of an exile causes us to see this world as our temporary home as our temporary home. You see, for God's people, there's this ever-present reality that we're not home yet, that, that we are citizens of another kingdom. You see, when you become a Christian, you don't just get adopted into God's family. You become a citizen of his kingdom. You become, in, in essence, you have you gain a dual citizenship. You have a citizenship in whatever place you're from and the people that you're from, but also you have a spiritual citizenship to, a, to another kingdom, a, a higher allegiance. But While the reality for an exile is that this world is just our temporary home, our identity as God's exiles, as citizens of his kingdom, living abroad, sent to live abroad, it doesn't mean that we disengage ourselves from this world. Instead, it's quite the opposite. It causes us to see ourselves as exile missionaries to the world around us. And so this world that we live in, the people that we live around, and the places that we have been sent are our urgent mission field. We're not called to live like immigrants who just try to assimilate into a culture, nor are we called to live like tourists who are just passing through. Instead, the the scriptures call us to live as foreign ambassadors who care deeply about the people and the places where God has put us because the king that we represent cares far more deeply, far more about them than we ever could. And he sent us as his ambassadors, his representatives, so that people might encounter him through his representatives, his exile people living in the kingdoms of this world. And so the reality is that for God's people, our identity as exiles, it leaves us living in this tension always of living, with, living as dual citizens, living as part of two distinct yet very different kingdoms simultaneously You see, we're citizens of God's eternal spiritual kingdom, and yet we're exile missionaries sent to love and serve and seek the transformation of the people and of the places where God sent us to live in the everyday stuff of life. And and so the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, is just simply this. As we think about what it looks like to be a part of the transforming work that God has called us into as his sent people in the world, what does it look like? for God's exile people to pursue the kind of change that he wants to bring about in us and through us in the world. What does it look like for us to pursue the kind of change that God wants to bring about in us and through us in the world? And what I want to highlight for us this morning as we study God's word is the fact that that pursuing the kind of change that God wants to bring about in us and through us in the world, it must begin with the correct diagnosis of what the problem is and what needs changing. You see, if we don't understand rightly what the problem is, our, our diagnosis and, and, and what needs changing will, will, will be wrong. And so we need to begin by understanding what the problems really are and what it means to jo- for us to join God in the transforming work that He wants to be a part of in us and through us. And so with that in mind, let's pray. We'll read our passage this morning. God, thank you for our time together. We're grateful uh, to get to gather again in our building. Thank you for giving us a space to do that. And God, we just want to come humbly uh, before you this morning and just ask that, that you would empower us uh, to, be able to, uh, to be able to respond rightly to your word this morning. God, would you fill me with your spirit so that I don't just teach what is right or true, but teach with authority and power uh, God, I can't do that on my own. And so I pray that you would do that through me and that you would enable us to respond rightly to your word this morning. And so, God, we just come dependent on you uh, for every part of our time in your word this morning. We pray that you would meet us in that need and that you would be transforming us so that we look more and more like your son, Jesus. And so we pray all these things uh, for our good, but ultimately for your great glory, God, we ask it. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, in a short little passage in Matthew chapter 15. And in this passage, what we see happening is that Jesus is kind of confronting some religious leaders who are actually trying to confront him, and he, he's turning the tables, really, on, on, on the situation. And, and uh, what Jesus is going to, we're going to see him doing is that he's kind of confronting them with the reality that their diagnosis of what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with people is fundamentally incorrect. And he wants to shape not only their understanding of what is the problem, but of how change happens in the first place. And so we begin in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 1 this morning. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law, they they came to Jesus from Jerusalem and they asked, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus replied, why do you break the commands of God for the sake of your own traditions? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother should be put to death. But, but you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, then they're not to honor their father or mother with it. And thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for these people honor me with their lips, yet their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. And Jesus called the crowd to him, and they said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. What comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. Peter said, explain this parable to us. Are, are you still so dull, Jesus asked them? you got to love that. Like Jesus is like, guys, you are killing me here, right? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth, it goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. These defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false testimony and slander. For these are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Now, uh, our passage this morning in Matthew 15, it it begins with a delegation of these religious leaders, they're Pharisees, they're religious leaders who have come all the way from Jerusalem to confront Jesus. And and if you don't know your geography, which is totally understandable, uh, it's about 60 miles of a walk from Jerusalem to where they're going to confront Jesus. It's like three days on foot takes to kind of make this journey. And the, the reason why they've come all this way, their big concern is that the disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. And you're thinking to yourself, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic and I know some germaphobes, but that seems a bit over the top, like seems a bit intense that you would make a 60 mile hike to tell somebody they should wash their hands before they eat and you would be right, right? Because the, the real issue here is not washing hands. They, they didn't just have some PTSD from the ancient version of COVID or something like that. The truth is, is that they're not actually concerned about hygiene at all. You see, they're, what they're all riled up about is about Jesus' disregard for practicing and teaching their religious rituals. Their rules, their, their, their systems. Verse 2, they say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands before they eat? You see, the Pharisees were very strict about holding to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, in particular the, the clean laws. And in their zeal to keep these cleanliness laws, they had kind of set up a fence around them of a bunch of other rules so they wouldn't get close to breaking the rules that God had set up for them. And God's law said that priests were required to wash their hands before they, prior to performing their priestly duties in the tabernacle. And, and the Pharisees, they decided that, that if, if that was good, then they should just wash their hands before they do anything in life. And, and that it wasn't just them that should wash their hands, that everybody should just wash their hands all the time before everything. And it wasn't a matter of hygiene, it was about like a spiritual cleanliness, a, a holiness These extra regulations were referred to as the tradition of the elders or as the oral law. And what had happened over time is that these these man-made laws had been elevated to the same status or even a higher status than, than the very words of God and what God had called his people to do. But what Jesus is really trying to confront with these religious leaders in the passage is is that the real problem with them wasn't just that they had invented all these extra rules or or that they had elevated the status of these rules. The real problem is that these religious leaders, they had missed the underlying truth that all of those laws that God had put about cleanliness, that they were there for. You see, the point of the Old Testament cleanliness laws, and if you read them today, you think, man, I'm really glad we're not doing that stuff because... That's just weird. I don't even know, I don't even understand what's going on, right? And I love shellfish, right? But it wasn't, those laws, they weren't just to, they weren't just some divine hygiene manual. And they also weren't trying to just teach people how to get right with God or stay right with him. Instead, God was using those laws to, te- to try to teach a deeper spiritual reality a deeper spiritual reality, and to help them see the things that were behind the physical realities. Tim Keller, one pastor, he notes it this way he says, In the same way that dirt and disease and decay defile the body, so too does sin defile the soul. Sin defiles you, it makes you dirty, unclean, and ultimately it separates you from God who is holy and pure and clean and spotless. Uh, I don't know about you. I have two kids. Love my kids. One of my favorite things is when I come home from work or come up from the office at the end of the day and I get a, they run to me and give me huge hugs. And I love that, except when they have been eating anything around ketchup, right? Because whenever they eat ketchup, there's this thin film of goober that's just pervasive around there. It just like gets on everything, right? And they are defiled, and I'd rather not my shirt get defiled, right? I'd rather have that stay clean for a little while. And so they come running at me when they got ketchup and I'm like, just an arm length, right? Let's just stay away here. Right? We don't need to get that close before we wash up, right? You see, but but unlike the external problem of ketchup that separates me from my kids sometimes, see, sin, sin is an internal problem that separates us from God. You see, and that's that's what all the external cleanliness laws in the Old Testament were trying to point out or pointing to. You see in verses 10 as well as 17 and 18 when Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, "It's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth from your heart that does." You see what he's doing is he's saying that sin is not an external behavior problem. Sin is an internal heart problem. It's not your bad behavior that defiles you. It's it's not what you do or what you eat that defiles you, that separates you from God. It's your sick and diseased heart. Jesus, at the end, he says, murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. He says, these are all heart problems long before they're behavior problems. They're not the sickness. They're, They're not the disease. They're merely the symptoms. You see, you see, it's not that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't think that sin was a big deal. They thought it was a huge problem, hence their OCD with washing hands and making sure they didn't break any rules. But what Jesus is saying is that while they understood the severity of the problem, they, they misunderstood fundamentally the nature of the problem. You see, they have an inaccurate diagnosis. And when you get the diagnosis wrong, you always get the treatment wrong. I don't know about you, uh, I enjoy doctor shows on TV sometimes. One of my favorite shows a while ago was Dr. House. And uh, in that show, he's always trying to diagnose some insane illness and somebody nobody else can figure out or whatever it is. And it always seems like in that show, it's like there's, either, there's two things it could possibly be and the solution, the treatment's either steroids or something else. But if you give them steroids and it's not it, they'll just die immediately, right? Like, there's always these life or death situations and steroids. I don't know why. I'm not a doctor. I'm just a pastor. I have no idea. But it seems like steroids either save you or kill you always, right? That's the one thing it always does, right? But the reality is, is that in that show, the the treatment is always directly tied to the diagnosis. And if you get the diagnosis wrong, you'll always get the treatment wrong. You see, in all those traditions of the elders, all those extra laws, the the religiosity, the legalism of the Pharisees, that was their treatment plan because they had diagnosed the problem of sin as an external behavior problem. That was their treatment plan for that. You see, if sin is an external problem, then your solutions will always be external ones. Just make some rules. Do your best to follow them, work hard, be disciplined, just suck it up and make it happen or or make some laws and try to make sure that everyone else follows them as well. You see, the Pharisees thought that sin was an external problem that they could solve by avoiding it or by simply rinsing themselves off if they got too close. But the problem, as Jesus points out for them and for everyone who treats the internal problem of sin with external solutions, is that it isn't actually fixing the problem. It's actually just making everything worse. You see, although they appear to be clean on the outside, these Pharisees are blind to the reality. Jesus tells them that their hearts are still riddled with the sickness, the disease of sin. You see, they weren't, they weren't getting better. They were getting sicker all their extra laws, all their strict traditions. They weren't leading them to love God more. They weren't leading them to become more like Him. They weren't, ca- they weren't producing a humility and an honesty and a generosity in them. They, weren't, they were just leading to self-righteousness and hypocrisy and greed. It wasn't leading them towards real worship, Jesus says. Verse 9, their worship was worthless and vain. But even more importantly... It was leading them, verse 8, Jesus says, to have hearts that were still far from God. J.D. Greer, he says it this way, even though legalism and religiosity can coerce your behavior, they won't actually change your motivations. And what God wants is not a group of people that can conform their behavior and mechanically do what they're supposed to. God wants a group of people who to love him to love him with all of their hearts and soul and mind. You See, when we try to treat the internal problem of sin with external solutions, what happens is we just end up masking the problem. We might clean things up on the outside, but we still leave things rotting on the inside. I don't know if you remember that old show, Pimp My Ride. They would bring people's totally dilapidated, destroyed vehicles in and they'd do like an amazing paint job and put like 15 TV screens in them. And then if you read any of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, what you find is that the cars actually needed new engines and some brakes, and they didn't get any of that. They just got a sweet paint job and a great stereo system, but they're still worthless vehicles. You see, external solutions can never solve the real internal problem. They only exasperate it. They only show us how deep the problem of sin really is. And you see, the real problems in our world, they are not primarily moral problems. They're not primarily political problems. They they cannot be fixed by governments and laws and systems and structures. In any given situation, your problem and my problem and the problem in the world around us fundamentally has to do with the internal problem of sin. And what we really need isn't just moral reform or political overhaul. What we need is restoration. What we need is redemption. What we need is transformation. You see, every other religion, every other philosophical, political system, it says the same thing. You can fix the problems in you and in the world with external solutions. See, what the Bible and only the Bible, it, it says that our problems are far too radical for that. Sin is an internal heart level problem, not an external one that no external solution can fix it. See, no politician can fix the problem of sin. No government can fix the problem of sin. No Supreme Court justice can pick the problem of sin. No law can fix the problem of sin. No religious duty can fix it. No amount of guilt or shame can fix it. No amount of duty or obligation or hard work or self-determination can fix the problem of sin. Ah, but Jesus can. See, and that's the good news of the gospel, that he is the solution to the internal problem of sin. He's the solution that God promised would come when God spoke to his exiled people in the book of Ezekiel chapter 36. And God, through the prophet, he says this to them. He says, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I'll put within you. He says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you, and I'll move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. You see, what what we need, what our world needs most is a transformation of the heart, and it's something that only god can do something only he can bring about you see the message of the gospel is the good news that jesus through jesus that god has made a way for people to truly be changed because it's through the gospel that people get new hearts with new motivations and new desires something they can never have without the gospel See, when we we realize that, that this is the kind of change that not only that we need, but that the world around us needs, what it does is it fundamentally shapes the way that we understand and pursue change in ourselves and in the world around us. You see, we stop looking to external solutions like political power or influence to be the means by which change happens in our world. We stop looking towards self-effort and self-determination to be the means by which transformation happens in our lives or in the lives of others. We stop looking towards using guilt or shame to force people into changing their behaviors or their actions to conform with what we think the world should be like. And instead, we look to the power of the gospel to be the thing that transforms. See, it's the good news that Jesus alone is able to completely solve the internal problem of sin that manifests itself in all the destructive thoughts and actions we see in our world. And it does so by giving people new hearts, new desires that want to follow him, that want to obey him, that want to be like him. so as God's people sent into the world we seek to both declare and to demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel in our own words and in our own lives to our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and we also recognize that the internal transformation of the heart that the gospel brings about is a process it's a process that requires a community that's committed to, to the values of safety and of time. And when I talk about the value of safety, what I, what I mean is a, a community that's created to committing a culture and an environment marked by non-accusation where no one is pressured or cornered into some kind of spiritual growth or spiritual transformation where we pursue spiritual change not out of guilt or out of fear of being shamed by someone else, Instead, we pursue spiritual change marked by showing grace towards one another. Marked by a community characterized by treating one another with gentleness, respect, restraint, and patience. You see, having a culture of safety in our relationships, it it not only helps people to relax and to open up, but but having a culture of safety, it also helps point people towards the greater reality that, that safety and refuge are ultimately found in Jesus alone. And that doesn't happen overnight. It it takes time, often a lot of time. Gospel-centered growth takes time and it takes patience because deep heart change happens slowly and usually in non-linear ways. It's messy. It's complicated. Transformation in people's lives is not just this straight path. It's, It's full of twists and turns and curry bends and a couple steps forward and sometimes some steps back. You see, I don't know about you, but when, when you look at people's lives, I, I've met very few people whose lives are transformed very quickly. And if they do, that's great, and praise God for that. But most often what happens is that the transformation happening in our hearts and lives is a slow process, painfully slow at times. And it happens over time, and it's not straight. Think about your own life the ways that you have grown spiritually, the ways that you have seen God transforming and changing you, that's happened slowly, hasn't it? It's happened over time in messy ways, and you see yourself as still in process. You see, and when we remember how gracious and patient Jesus has been with us, it empowers us to create a culture of graciousness and of patience in our relationships with one another as we seek to bring about the transformation of our own lives and as we seek to bring about change in the lives of others and in our world, we need to be a people that are marked by a gracious attitude towards others, full of patience, full of long-suffering, willing to, willing to walk with people in the messiness and, and in the hardness of transformation You see, and it's remembering Jesus' graciousness towards us, his patience with us as he sought to transform our own hearts and lives. That's a big part of what we're doing when we take communion together. We're reminding ourselves about the gospel. We're reminding ourselves about who Jesus is and all that he has done. We're reminding ourselves about his patience with us and his graciousness towards us when our hearts and our lives were far from him communion, it doesn't make you right with God. it It doesn't save you. It doesn't change your status or your standing with God in any way. Instead, it's a chance for us to remember, to remind ourselves of the transforming power of the gospel and of the grace and of the patience that Jesus has shown so that we might be transformed by it. And so this morning, as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've Put your trust in Jesus. If if he is the one that you have put your trust in to renew and transform and redeem you, then whenever you're ready, take communion. Uh, Hopefully you picked up one of the communion snack packs on your way in. And and, uh, if you didn't, there's there's some on a table in the back. You can grab one. But joyfully remember all that Jesus has done for you. Choose to remind yourself of his grace with you. Remind yourself of his patience with you. Remind yourself of the good news of the gospel and how it transforms you. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is and, and even if you want to be a citizen of his kingdom, I just want to encourage you, you're welcome here. I'm glad that you would join us this morning. I'm glad that you would even be here with us, that you'd be investigating in that and, and thinking through that. But I'd encourage you this morning, hold off on taking communion. Instead, talk with Jesus. Ask him. Ask him to reveal to you the goodness of the gospel. Ask him to show you who he is and all that he has done for you. This morning as we sing, as we take communion, as we remember the gospel together, I'd encourage all of you, talk with God, be honest with him about the change that you know needs to happen in your own life or that you think needs to happen in your life or the lives of others and confess to him, be honest with him about the things that you have been looking to, the, the means that you have been looking to for change that are other than the gospel. Things you've been trusting in to change you or to change others or to change this world. Ask him to help you believe that the gospel is the one and only thing that can transform your heart and your life and the lives of others. And ask him to help you to join him in pursuing that change in you and in the world as you value the gospel and safety and time as a community. I pray that we would do that as a community for for our joy, for the good of others, for the good of our community that God has sent us to live as his people in, but ultimately for the glory of God as people enjoy and treasure, and worship him. And so to that end, let's pray this morning. God, we are so grateful to get to come together uh, this morning and to sit under the, the good authority of your word and to wrestle with the realities that it has for us. And so God, we, we come as well with hearts that need you to transform us that need a transformation that only you can bring about in us. And God, we confess that in our own lives, we look towards other things to do that transforming work. We look to our own self-effort. We look towards politics or governmental reform. We look towards self-determination. We we look towards guilt or shame to, to be the thing that brings about the change in us or in others and in our world. And God, we just need to confess to you that none of that can work. The one thing that has the power to transform is the the good news of the gospel, that you have forgiven us and paid the penalty for our sin so that we might know and be known by you, that we might have new hearts, new desires, and new purposes. So God, we humbly ask that you would be shaping us as your people so that that reality is present in our hearts and minds and it shapes our actions and our thoughts God, and we ask that you would do that, not just for our own good, not just so that that we might reflect you rightly. God, we ask that you do that so that your glory might be known as we humbly trust in you and point others to a hope in you that really can transform. We pray these things in your good name, God. Amen.